The following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, September 19, 2021, on the basis of Mark 9, verses 30 through 37. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. For the past several weeks, we've been talking about taking time to reassess and, where necessary, reset our spiritual habits. And as we sit here this morning, I'm guessing that each and every one of us could pick out an example of a habit that we have that is different from the habit we wished we had. And out of all the reasons we might come up with for why exactly that is, maybe one reason that doesn't immediately come to mind is this. Self-sabotage. In other words, that the reason you don't have the habits that you want to have is because you actively, willfully, deliberately do things in your life that keeps you from forming those habits. I mean, that sounds silly, doesn't it? Who would actually do something like that? Well, there's an author by the name of Emily Swoboda who would suggest that a lot of people do believe it or not. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned a best-selling book about habits. As you might imagine, there's a lot of books on the marketplace that deal with habit formation. And in her book, Emily Swoboda argues that the reason a lot of people don't have the habits in their life that they want to have is not because they lack information. It's not because they lack determination or drive. It's actually because they're afraid. They're afraid to maybe try something new only to fail. They're afraid, perhaps, to form a particular habit only to find out that it doesn't deliver what it promised. And in order to cope with that fear, Emily Swoboda suggests that a lot of people end up sabotaging their own efforts to form new habits. They end up actively and deliberately doing things that keep them from forming the habits that they want to have. Well, this morning, the the spiritual habit that we are discussing has to do with the pursuit of greatness. All of us want to be great in our lives, whether we consciously think about that a whole lot or not. We want the things that we do to matter. We want to know and be convinced that we're not just taking up oxygen here on planet Earth, but that we're actually contributing something positive to the world around us. We want to be great. And it's easy to assume that if something would stand in the way of us and that greatness that we desire, it would naturally be something that is external, something outside of us, some sort of uncontrollable circumstances that we just can't overcome no matter how hard we try. Or someone else, perhaps, in our life who wants to be great as well, maybe even wants to be great a little bit more than we do. In either case, something else, something external, something outside of us. And yet the verses that are in front of us this morning actually suggest just the opposite. These verses show us that that Jesus' followers have a lot to learn when it comes to this topic of greatness. And probably the biggest lesson that we have to learn is that if something stands between us and the greatness that we desire, it's probably not going to be something that is outside of us. Instead, the reason that we don't form the habits that lead to greatness will probably end up being caused by fear. And that fear will probably result in self-sabotage. In other words, as we look at these verses from Mark chapter 9 this morning, we're going to see that the only person 
who can stand between you and greatness is you. Now, as we look at these verses, it it sure seems as though there is this tug of war going on between two seemingly opposite strategies for pursuing greatness. For starters, we hear about the strategy that Jesus is going to use to pursue greatness in his own life. As Jesus and his disciples are walking along, Jesus says to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. So Jesus is saying that the Son of Man, referring to himself, that's a title from the Old Testament, that indicates that he has power and authority over all people. Jesus is saying that he is actually going to be delivered into the hands of those very people. And those very people, the people that he has power and authority over, are going to put him to death. Then he will rise from the dead. That's the path he's planning to follow that leads to greatness. Interesting strategy, I suppose. I wonder what the disciples thought about that. Well, we don't have to wonder because we are told that when they got to the place where they were going, Jesus asked them what they had been discussing as they walked along. And it turns out that they were arguing among each other. They were bickering. They were fighting about which one of them was the greatest. Perhaps this this little spat among the disciples was caused by the fact that just prior to this, Jesus had invited three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and only them to come up to the top of the mountain where his transfiguration took place. And perhaps this privilege that was extended to these three became for them a source of pride compared to the rest of Jesus' disciples. Perhaps the fight was caused by the fact that when they came down from that mountain, we're told that the rest of the disciples had been brought a boy who was possessed by a demon, but they were unable to drive that demon out. And so they were being criticized by the crowds and by the religious leaders. And perhaps that criticism caused those disciples to get a little bit combative and defensive. Or perhaps it was just the words that Jesus had had just recently said. I mean, based on what he was saying, that he was going to be delivered into the hands of men and put to death, it sure seemed like there was going to be a job opening At the very top of their company, they would need a new leader of their pack, and maybe one of them could fill that role. Whatever caused this bickering among the disciples to take place, it was very clear that the disciples and Jesus had a very different strategy for pursuing greatness. And in fact, it it became even more clear that Jesus wanted them to follow a much different strategy pursuing greatness in their own lives. Jesus responded to their bickering by saying this, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. In other words, the path to greatness is not to scratch and claw and elbow our way as high as we possibly can get. No, Jesus says the path to greatness is a life of service. And not just service to those who can repay us for our kindness. Not just the kind of service that gets us recognition or gets us credit. Jesus says you must become the servant of all, a servant of the very last and the servant of the very least. And in order to provide a little bit of an object lesson for what he is saying, Jesus brings a child 
into the middle of the room. Someone who has absolutely no social standing, someone who has no ability to repay any kindness or service that is done to them. And Jesus says, greatness looks like serving someone just like this. They seem like opposite strategies. Which one do you think will lead to greatness in your life faster? Kind of seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? I mean, it certainly is obvious which path most of the world around us is following, correct? Let me give you a couple quick examples. A few weeks back, I was running in Madison. I was running along a, a bike path. And on one side of that bike path were some office buildings. And on the other side was the parking lot that served those office buildings. So I saw people arrive for work that day and then walk right across the path that I was on to get to work. So at first, I saw a, a group of three or four very well-dressed businessmen who were off to work in the morning. And then right behind them, I saw a group of two or three much younger looking men who were walking to work, also very well dressed, but they were carrying in their arms a couple of boxes in which I could only assume were some donuts. And so I don't know if this was actually the case, but right away in my mind, the little scenario that I envisioned is that these younger men were interns and it was their job, at least that day, to bring fresh, delicious donuts to work, to serve them to the bosses that they worked for. And of course, right away I thought to myself, boy, wouldn't it be nice if at good news there was someone who was younger than me, a little less experienced than me, someone who worked directly under my supervision, and someone who happened to be sitting in the room today to find out that my favorite donuts are those chocolate-covered ones with the cream that's on the inside. If only that were the case, how nice that would be. Let me give you another quick example. So recently, in our church body, the new hymnal that our church body produced showed up at all of the churches in our church body. Everyone got a, a free copy. And many of you know that I was on the committee that helped put this book together. So for the past seven years of my life, a, a good healthy number of hours have gone into the work that resulted in this hymnal. And just this week, every church Every pastor in our church body finally got their hands on a copy. And wouldn't you know it, there were some pastors who got their, their hymnal, started looking through it, and found some things that they didn't necessarily like all that much, or maybe that they thought could have been better. And so do you know what they did? They went online, and they told a few other pastors what they thought. Can you believe that? Can you believe the nerve of those people? I don't know who they think they are, but I do know that their name is not in the back of this book like mine is. And so let me tell you about some of the things that I wanted to say in response to that criticism. Those are just a couple of silly examples, admittedly so. But it wouldn't take us a whole lot of work to think of some much more serious examples of how the strategy that the disciples thought was the right one is often the strategy that we pursue as well. That privilege turns into a source of pride. That criticism is responded to with combativeness. Or that opportunity leads us to be opportunistic. I mean, of course, all of us have received, all of us have, have had doors open for us that we didn't do anything to earn or deserve. But, but why should that stop us from taking credit for those things, right? And of course, all of us have things that we do 
and ways that we treat people that at times deserve to be rightly criticized. But if we don't respond to that criticism with defensiveness, with our dukes up, being quick to excuse or blame or minimize what we've done, well, then that criticism is going to stick and it's going to hold us back. And of course, when an opportunity comes along, we shouldn't immediately think of how we can capitalize on it as quickly as possible, especially if that opportunity came as a result of someone else's misfortune. But if we don't seize that opportunity, surely someone else will. And here Jesus wants us to live a life of service, a life where we serve not just a few select choice people that we've decided are worthy, but a life where we serve the lowest and the least. Not only do these seem like opposite strategies, but it even seems as though Jesus is the one who wants to stand between us and the greatness we desire. And so it's no wonder that those disciples were afraid. It's a very important detail in this story. Mark tells us that as they are walking along, the disciples did not understand what Jesus meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Now, when Mark tells us that they didn't understand Jesus, he doesn't mean that they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. How do I know? First of all, because Jesus' words were very simple and very clear. Second of all, because this was now the second time Jesus had talked to his disciples about his coming, suffering, and death. So they understood what Jesus was saying. What they didn't understand was why he was saying it. Why, Jesus, is this the strategy? Why are you going to suffer and die? That was the question that they were too scared to ask. And it's really too bad that they were. Because as a result of that fear, they ended up only sabotaging themselves. And they ended up only being the ones who were standing in the way between them and the greatness that they desired. You see, if they hadn't been afraid, if they had had the courage to ask Jesus that all-important question of why, Jesus could have answered in just two very simple words. For you. The Son of Man is going to give up all of the power and authority that he has over people so that you can sit on a throne and reign alongside him. The one who is exalted over all things is going to make himself as low as possible so that you can be exalted. The one who is sinless and perfectly innocent is going to be condemned and punished so that you can go free. The Lord of heaven and earth is going to make himself dirt poor so that you can have a share in his inheritance. The author of life itself is going to willingly die so that you can live forever. You see, there is a reason why Jesus wants us to live this life of service. Yes, it is for the blessings and the benefits that it brings to the lives of the people around us. But in addition to that, a life of service, a life where we always put others first, by definition, prize 
from our incompetent hands that job of becoming great ourselves. It forces us to admit that the greatness we desire is far above our pay grade. It forces us to instead trust Jesus to bring us that greatness, knowing that he came to earth for that very reason. And that makes Jesus' strategy for our lives a whole lot less scary. As many of you know, last week, about this time, I was surrounded by thousands of other people, some of whom had a look on their face that might be described as scared. I'm guessing some of them might have looked at the the look on my face and thought that I was a little bit scared too. And out of all the things that a person could be scared about at the start of an Ironman triathlon, probably right at the very top of the list is this, that at some point over the course of the next 140.6 miles, you are going to get so tired, so exhausted, or be in so much pain that finally you decide to quit. You decide you can't do it, you decide to give up. That's a scary thought when you're standing there at the starting line. But as I thought about these verses this week, I thought, what if they changed the rules of an Ironman a little bit? What if when you got to that point where you couldn't swim any farther, there was a nice jet ski just waiting there for you to take you the rest of the way? Or what if when you got to that point when you could not pedal up one more hill, there was a nice fully charged e-bike that you could hop on that would take you to the finish line? Or what if when you got to that point when you were running and you couldn't take one step further, there was a nice moving walkway that you could just step on that led you all the way to the finish line? If those were the rules, then not only would you no longer be scared of getting to that point where you were ready to give up, you would want to get to that point where you were ready to give up as fast as you possibly could. In fact, the only people who would be foolish in a race like that would be the people who would insist on doing the entire thing themselves. Friends, if we hold on to this pursuit of greatness for ourselves, we end up doing nothing more than sabotaging ourselves. We end up being our own worst enemies. We end up standing in the way between us and the greatness that we desire. But when we live a life of service, we put that greatness and that pursuit of greatness in Jesus' capable hands. We hand that job over to him. We let him take care of it for us. These two seemingly opposite strategies for pursuing greatness are not opposite at all. It's just that Jesus' strategy for pursuing greatness is so much superior to ours. Jesus doesn't want to stand between us and the greatness we desire. In fact, he's the only one who can possibly deliver it. Which is why I think ultimately Emily Swoboda has it all wrong. Not about the fact that that some people are afraid to develop the habits that they desire, and not even about the fact that in that fear they sometimes end up sabotaging themselves. I think she's got that all right. But her remedy for that fear that causes us to sabotage ourselves is courage. In fact, the, the title of her book is The Courage Habit. It's all about facing down those fears and learning to believe in yourself more. Well, throughout the Bible, including in these verses, the opposite of fear is not courage. The opposite of fear 
is trust. Not learning to believe in yourself more, but learning to believe in Jesus more. Jesus, who willingly gave up all of his greatness so that you could share in his. So if you're ever tempted to look at his plan of living a life of service and be a little bit afraid of what might happen to you if you follow that plan, remember that the opposite of fear is not courage. The opposite is of fear is trust. And that's trust that Jesus has more than earned. Amen. <laughs>